Was Operation Iraqi Freedom ever a good idea? The question sounds gratuitous today, doesn't it? We'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who still believes that. And little wonder, just consider what happened once that Pandora's box was opened. Sectarian hatred, civil war, daily bombings, the rise of ISIL, growing Iranian influence. However, if you want to answer the question, was it worth it, you can't just content yourself with looking at what actually happened. To make an honest assessment, you'll need to compare that with what likely would have happened if there had been no invasion, because letting Saddam Hussein remain in power was probably not going to be without its downsides either. We can never know what would have happened in that scenario, of course, but it can give us an indication uh, if we look at what life was actually like when Saddam still caught the shots in Iraq, which we will do today. Then we must try to extrapolate that into the future. For a fair comparison, we'll need to factor in how Saddam might have reacted to, say, the Arab Spring. This is of course an exercise in speculation, but it helps that we have a control group of sorts, because, as we'll also see today, Syria was run in a similar fashion as Saddam's Iraq, and the Assad regime was not brought down in 2003. During the three decades before the Iraq war, both countries were ruled by a single dictator. In the case of Syria, Hafez al-Assad, the father of the current president, and in the case of Iraq, Saddam Hussein. The fact that these two men managed to remain in power for all this time is all the more striking because their two countries had been extremely turbulent before. This is partly because of the Machiavellian methods that they used. These don't just explain their success, if you can call it that, but also the chaos that would accompany their downfall. Their career paths are strikingly similar. Both rose through the ranks of the Ba'ath party, and both took power after an internal coup against their superiors. In the case of Hafez al-Assad, this happened in 1970. By that point, Saddam was officially still the second in command, but in reality he was already the strongest player in the country. Ahmed al-Bakr was still the president and his theoretical boss until Saddam got rid of him in 1979. And that will be quite an event. It sets the tone for Saddam's approach in the coming decades. It starts when President al-Bakr convenes a special meeting of the Revolutionary Command Council, and there he announces his resignation for health reasons officially. Now, although it is known that the president is ill, this still comes as a shock, especially as he steps down in favor of his cousin Saddam. Saddam Hussein was a feared man already, and the prospect of him gaining all the power filled many with unease. Some openly tried to persuade al-Bakr to reconsider even, but to no effect. That is just the beginning, however. Soon after, the new leader convenes an emergency session of the Ba'ath party leadership. The agenda? Unknown. People are feeling unsettled already as they notice that the event is being filmed. Surely that's not a good sign. The tension is palpable, and it is about to get a lot worse when Saddam starts speaking. He announces that he has uncovered a plot. A man is summoned to the speaker's platform, and everyone immediately recognizes him. It is Mashadi, the man who had openly asked al-Bakr to reconsider his resignation. But he doesn't look so combative now. 
Instead, he gazes up at Saddam like a beaten puppy would to its master. With trembling voice, he admits that he conspired to overthrow the leadership. As he looks meekly at the man next to him, Mashadi then starts to implicate others, who are present in that very room. Soon as Mashadi points them out, they are lifted from their seats and taken away. Everyone is soiling their pants by now. The room is full of pale faces and nervous coughs. While dozens and dozens of terrified men are taken away, those remaining start pleading, crying, applauding, shouting, Long live Saddam! And well, they might, because for all they know, they might well be next. The dictator now has them right where he wants them. Although he occasionally pretends to weep about this tragic betrayal, he is clearly relishing in the spectacle. He is enjoying a giant Cuban cigar all throughout the performance, occasionally casting ominous glances hither and thither into the crowd. It's obvious at this point why he videotaped the event. The whole country would soon know what happens if you got on Saddam's bad side. It's chilling to think that this is the reason we can still watch this online. And not far-fetched to think to make the connection with ISIL's infamous torture videos. Now, there was a link between this event and Syria. In the run-up to Saddam's coup, there had been talk of Baathist Iraq and Baathist Syria merging into one giant state. This was meant for public consumption only. Pan-Arabism was popular with the masses. But of course, neither of the country's rulers was willing to make room for the other. Those that did not understand this and were actually trying to keep the process of unification on the rails, these were singled out by Saddam as untrustworthy and they would now pay the price. The timing of the whole thing was not accidental either. It had long been clear that al-Bakr regretted giving so much power to his cousin Saddam. He had created a monster that he could no longer control. So rumor had it that he was going to give up the presidency in favor of Hafez al-Assad, thereby effectively merging the countries. That would undercut Saddam and ingratiate al-Bakr to the new leader Hafez. Whether he really planned to do this and whether Assad would go along with it, that's of little importance now. What matters is that Saddam apparently believed it and this would have spurred him into action. Calls this boded ill for the future relationship with this Syrian counterpart. There immediately followed a period of grave tensions between the two nations, if not low-level warfare. In the coming years, Assad would support Saddam's enemies, first in the Iran-Iraq war and then again in the Gulf War. And yet, when Iraq became subject to sanctions in the 90s, he would be first in line to help him circumvent them, but only for one reason, so that Syria could profit by buying Iraqi oil on the cheap. It's no wonder that the two dictators didn't see eye to eye. In terms of character, Hafez and Saddam were polar opposites in some ways. As the story of his coup makes plain, Saddam was cartoonishly cruel, literally. He plays the uber-villain in a South Park movie, even. It's this ruthlessness that gained him the respect of his superiors, but it wasn't merely instrumental. He also tortured without reason. He loved to play sadistic games with people. I don't think you need to be a psychiatrist to see that there was something very wrong with this guy, pathologically wrong, and I guess it ran in the family as his sons were even worse. 
Now, Afez al-Assad could be tough too, no doubt about it, but he only used force when he felt he had to in general. As we saw in the previous episode, his son even got a reputation for being too sweet for the job. You would never, you would never see him firing a gun in public like Saddam liked to do. The Assads are not in the least charismatic and they don't try to be. Although their portraits are ever-present in Syria, their image is more that of prudent father figures. They keep a low profile. Hafez lived with his family in a sober middle-class house. For him, modesty was a virtue. Saddam, by contrast, had an unknown number of palaces, which all had to be ready to receive him without notice. Everything about his lifestyle was extravagant. His food, his clothes, every detail of his personal hygiene. He presented himself as a world leader, a fearless conqueror. This was one of the reasons that he attacked Iran, by the way. In the 70s, the Shah had forced Iraq to cede full control over the Shat al-Arab in return for ceasing to support Kurdish rebels in Iraq. The Shah had one of the world's best armies at the time, and Saddam was smart enough to see that he had to back down at this point, but that did not sit well with his self-image or his public persona as an uncompromising victor. When the Shah was toppled eventually, he took the opportunity to wash out the stain of defeat, taking back not just the Shat al-Arab, but also the valuable border region of Khuzestan, which he ominously dubbed Arabistan. A dangerous bet that would explode in his face, and it would not be the only one. Saddam was a reckless gambler throughout his career. Early on, he already took part in a daring assassination attempt on Iraq's leader Qassem. The attack failed, and it might easily have been his undoing. As president, he would be equally willing to gamble with the lives of his citizens when he attacked Iran. The war would cost countless lives and wreck the economy. Now, if you gamble away your car in Vegas, you can either cut your losses, or you can go try to recapture them and bet your whole house. Once the Iran war was over, Saddam turned on Kuwait, another giant bet that he would soon regret. In a couple of weeks, US bombardments would do more damage to Iraq's economy than eight years of trench warfare with Iran. When he was subjected to sanctions afterwards, he refused to abide by them. In a way, Saddam played bluff poker all his life. It's almost a miracle that he came away with it for as long as he did. Hafez al-Assad, by comparison, was extremely risk-averse. The way that he came to power was perhaps indicative. He was promoted to Air Force commander, mostly because the civilian leader at the time considered him no threat. He showed little ambition. But after the Syrian army was humiliated in the Six-Day War in 1967, the civilian leadership tried to blame it on him, which narrowly failed. In the aftermath, he felt he had little choice but to steer his own course and build his own power base. Just a few years later, the Palestine Liberalization Organization tried to take over the Kingdom of Jordan, the PLO that is. But when the Jordanians gained the upper hand, Hafez was ordered by his superior to come to the Palestinians' aid. But Hafez thought that this would be too risky. The Jordanian king was the Israeli's best friend in the region. So Assad reckoned that they would never allow him to be replaced, and least of all, by the PLO. So Hafez calculated that if he intervened on the Palestinians' uh, behalf, then Israel would pulverize his air force 
and his reputation with it, allowing his internal enemies to blame him for the whole thing, as they already tried to do in 1967. So Hafez, compelled to choose, refused to attack. Consequently, the Palestinians were pushed out of Jordan in a campaign that would be known as Black September. But it was Assad's superior that got the blame for all this. And with his reputation now in ruins, Hafez could shove him aside. He only did so, however, because he was practically forced to do so. Like with the rise of Saddam, the curtain fell at an emergency meeting of the party congress. However, the way it went couldn't have been more different. Because in this case, it was Hafez who would be lambasted and stripped of his position. Yet foreseen this, however, loyal troops were already in place to take over, which happened as soon as the meeting finished. Purges and show trials would follow. But the general picture that I get from this is that Hafez comes across as an almost reluctant putschist, grabbing power and then holding on to it because it was safer than all the alternatives. Later, too, Hafez always kept his cards close to his chest. Sometimes his unwillingness to take risks would isolate him. For instance, when the Egyptian leader Anwar Sadat made peace with Israel. This put Syria in a very awkward position, as practically the only Arab state that would still confront Israel. Even the combined forces of all the Arab states in the region had been no match for the Israelis before, so now that Syria was on its own, the situation looked hopeless. However, the Syrian people probably didn't realize this. If he wanted peace with Israel, then Hafez would have to compromise over the Golan Heights, a part of Syria that the Israelis occupied, and still occupy, by the way. If he did that, then his people would see him as a traitor and a coward. The subsequent murder of Anwar Sadat confirmed to him that he had been right all along. His uncompromising attitude would pay some dividends at first. Arab states that did not dare to confront Israel themselves would try to launder their reputation by sponsoring regimes that did. Most of all, Syria. Many Syrians were also allowed to work for the oil sheikhs, and their families would depend on the money that they sent home. For these reasons, the 70s would be a good time for the Syrian economy, and Assad profited from this to create a strong patronage system, especially in the expanding army and bureaucracy. Development projects bought him some popularity too. And same thing in Iraq, which stood to profit from the explosion of energy prices in the aftermath of the oil crisis because nationalizations in the oil industry had just happened, giving the leadership of the time unseen possibilities for development as well as patronage. In the 80s, however, the situation worsened in both countries. Iraq, as we've seen, was dragged in an unending cycle of war and isolation, but Syria too would suffer as oil prices fell and richer Arab states became less willing to sponsor the confrontation with Israel. As a result, Assad felt obliged to reform the economy. But characteristically, he did so only in a restrained manner, so as not to rock the boat too much. After all, subsidies, patronage and unaccountability were what kept his clients happy and loyal. As other donors withdrew their support, he would also grow more dependent on Moscow. But he also made a new friend. The new Islamist regime in Tehran understandably had few allies among Arab leaders as it called for their overthrow. It could use a friend like Assad, and so, to the surprise of many, 
he sided with Iran against Iraq, even though that was the only other Baathist state in the world. Then again, as I said, he and Saddam were not exactly pals anyway. And yet, the Islamic revolution in Iran also frightened Assad, for much the same reason that it scared other Arab leaders. And in 1982, the Muslim Brotherhood seemed to try to emulate the Iranian revolution in Syria. Although led in this case by the Sunni majority. In fact, the literacy that Hafez had helped spread may have encouraged an Islamist revival, as many more people could now read the Quran. The revolt was centered on the city of Hama. Assad, all too aware of what had happened in Iran, saw this as an existential threat, and he took no chances. The city was sealed off so that no food, medicine, or power could get in. And then the army was sent in. Most of the buildings would be leveled, and by the time it was all over, tens of thousands would lay dead. This carried a message. The regime would be willing to do anything to ensure its survival. Anything. Syrians wouldn't forget it. Which partly explains why it took them so long to join the Arab Spring. And when they did, the lesson of Hama was relearned sevenfold. That same year, 1982, Israel invaded Lebanon. Assad saw that as an effort to outflank Syria just now that it was at its most vulnerable. That's why, when he got the chance, he would also enter the Lebanese civil war. When it finally died down, Syria emerged as the clear winner. It could keep troops stationed there to make sure that the Israelis wouldn't return, all the while securing his western flank while well-connected Syrians would profit from the fact that their government was now calling the shots in Beirut. Syria also helped its ally Hezbollah become the strongest force in Lebanon. It would yet become a major headache for Israel. Other outcast groups like Hamas and the PKK were allowed to operate on Syrian soil at some point. This may seem reckless, but you must be aware of the fact that Syria is a relatively weak state militarily, so when confronted with much stronger enemies, it feels that it must resort to asymmetrical methods of warfare, and sponsorship of troublesome non-state actors like these is an example of this. It was politics by other means. Support for Hezbollah and Hamas, that was a bargaining chip that might be exchanged for the Golan hate someday. This was a marriage of convenience. Nonetheless, Hezbollah would yet prove crucial for the political survival of the Assads in the Arab Spring, as would Russia and Iran, these other two friends of convenience that Assad made. It will no doubt be clear by now that Hafez was a very different creature from Saddam. His name means lion, but he was more like a fox, I think. He would only fight when cornered. His ruthlessness was pure strategy, as is probably the case for his son too. Machiavelli would probably not approvingly. Remember that in the last episode, we asked if it is possible that Bashar al-Assad is at heart a well-meaning man, like his biographer would claim, while all the while his regime does all these terrible, nasty things. A Game of Thrones character did uh, once say that those who presume to rule must sometimes do vile things for the good of the realm. Is that it? Or is it more like this? Here is a quote from Machiavelli that I found on the internet. A prince may be perceived to be merciful, faithful, humane, frank, and religious, but most important is only to seem to have these qualities, 
A prince cannot truly have these qualities because at times it is necessary to act against them." Unquote. Now perhaps none of the above would apply to Assad, as I said before, he's an enigma to me. But Saddam was quite different. For him, vile acts were certainly not necessary evils, they were his favorite part of the job. And yet, in other ways, he too would fit Machiavelli's ideal of the prince. For all told, the two strongmen both managed to rule for about 30 years in a row. 30 years! This unusual staying power is all the more striking because in the previous period, the average leader in Syria and Iraq lasted little longer than an iceberg let use. This can largely be explained by the effective strategies and tactics that Assad and Saddam would use. These were often similar. Let's take a look at them, shall we, and wonder whether Machiavelli would have approved or not. For starters, we might note similarities in their background and in the way that they came to power. Machiavelli wrote that if a leader inherits his throne, he will find it easier to consolidate power, for he will be accepted by default on account of his birthright. A so-called new prince, on the other hand, will be required to break with tradition to legitimize his rise to power. But once he manages to overcome that hurdle, his position will be more secure because by then he will command everyone's fear and respect. Hafez and Saddam clearly fall in the latter category. They were both newcomers to the elite and they both grew up among poor farmers. In the case of Hafez, he even came from a minority that was discriminated against at the time the Alevites. When he was young, Syria was still mostly run by Sunnis, and they dominated all the good positions. Hafez joined the army because that was pra practically the only career path that was open to minorities. He also joined the quasi-socialist Ba'ath party, in which Alevites were also relatively well represented. Coming in from the margins, the two men could not build a strong power base within the formal elites. To consolidate power, they felt they had to append the existing hierarchy. They stripped the old guard of all ambitious people, as Machiavelli would surely recommend. In their place came people from the same tribal background. In the case of Assad, these were Alevites, and in the case of Saddam, Sunnis. It's a common misconception that just because these regimes were dominated by one sect, that there must have been religious reasons behind this. In reality, this was because leaders surrounded themselves with people that they knew well and trusted, who in turn built their own client networks with people that they knew. And usually, these were, they found these within their own tribes and families, which typically belonged to the same sect. The Syrian regime was not just dominated by Alevites, but more precisely by the clan of Hafez al-Assad and that of his wife. In the case of Saddam, the leadership was not just Sunni, it came mostly from the northeast of Iraq, and specifically from the region around Tikrit. At the very center of power were close family members. But even ties of blood were not a panacea against conspiracies. There was some within the presidential clan itself. Saddam was the cousin of al-Bakr, and that hadn't stopped him from taking his place. His own son-in-law fled abroad. And Hafez was almost deposed by his own brother in the aftermath of the Hama massacre, when he was very ill. Army factions loyal to both brothers then confronted each other in the streets with tanks and all. 
Only after the personal intervention of the sick president would his brother agree to back down. In line with their diverging personalities, the two dictators dealt with treason differently. Saddam lured his daughter's husband back to Iraq with promises of forgiveness. Then he had him killed. By contrast, Assad's brother was even allowed to stay on as nominal vice president after his failed coup attempt. As far as he was concerned, punishing his brother wasn't worth risking splits within the family, because this would also split the regime. And perhaps he had a point, group solidarity among the Syrian elite would prove key in their survival in recent years. Assad kept the same people on board throughout his whole tenure, which had the downside that they had ample time to build their own power base. They could not easily be bossed about by Bashar when he took over. Saddam, however, saw no need to repay loyalty with security. And that was a problem, for although Machiavelli said that a prince cannot in fact be trustworthy, he must in any case appear so. That was not Saddam's strong point. But he had his reasons for even sacrificing people that hadn't put a foot wrong. This ensured that everyone would know their place, and he required a continuous stream of riches, lucrative jobs and privileges to reward his latest favorites. Whose money and whose position was that going to be? Machiavelli said that it was no good being too generous with your own money because people inevitably get used to that, and once you can't keep it up, they start complaining. But other people's stuff, that's a different matter. Convicted traitors were simply expropriated, their place and their belongings handed over to useful loyalists. The Iraqi regime was already confiscating land without compensation in the late 60s, while the Syrian regime is redistributing property of supposed rebels even today. However, if you rule through patronage, you are also bound to its rules. Patron-client relationships are not unilateral affairs. The client owes his allegiance to the patron, but in return, the patron owes him protection and goodies. He has to hold up his side of the bargain, or the deal is off. Remember that Bashar, in his honeymoon days, indicated that he wanted a freer society in Syria? And remember what happened then? Reform is always tricky because it antagonizes those that benefit from the way things are, and these are by definition powerful. More people might stand to profit from a reformed system, but that remains to be seen, and so even the reform's intended beneficiaries will be reluctant to support it in general. Bashar eventually concluded that he needed the insiders more than the common people. In both countries, some of the regime's cronies felt entitled to do whatever they wanted. Extortion, torture, rape, even murder. And by and large, their leaders let them get away with it. Machiavelli would have found this unwise. He preferred the support of the people over that of the elite. For the common man at least is unlikely to mistake his ruler for an equal. True to this maxim, Hafez and Saddam both presented themselves as men of the people. And to be honest, there was something to this. They had both grown up among poor farmers, so they were in touch with the needs of the countryside. And in general, they invested the country's resources accordingly. For example, Assad built a dam on the Euphrates that supplied practically every village with electricity. Healthcare and basic schooling were also provided for. Farmers at last got access to credit at reasonable rates.
a big improvement from over the usury by notables that had plagued Syria for so long. His son would have different priorities. As a second-generation man, he had never lived among the poor. Perhaps that explains it. Bashar's standing would take a beating when he gave landowners more means to evict their tenants. But of course that was nothing compared to what would happen after the Arab Spring. When you get into the business of leveling hospitals instead of building them, popularity is no longer your concern, I guess. Now, even if being feared is preferable to being loved, then perhaps it is better still when people pretend to love you out of fear. A personality cult can help you with that. Saddam proclaimed that he was a descendant not just of Ali, but even of the ancient kings of Mesopotamia. It is all too easy to dismiss something like this as the whim of a megalomaniac who's lost touch with reality. It's true, of course, that in the absence of open opposition, you can start to believe in your own propaganda, but forced adoration does have its advantages as well. Officially, the leader is infallible, and everyone goes along with this, even if deep down they know that he's just a man. Because if they don't, they will be accused of high treason, and then anyone has the duty to report them. In both regimes, the secret police, or mukaparat, was omnipresent. Many people only dared to talk politics with their most trusted friends and relatives in whispering tone while playing the radio real loud. Out in the open, all went along with the charade, except for the most brave or suicidal. And once everyone has heard you shout, long live Saddam Hussein, it will be rather difficult to take it back later. It sounds a lot like the fairy tale about the emperor's new clothes, doesn't it? Except that in this case, the joke is not on the emperor. In the real world, the little girl that says, haha, he has no clothes on, she gets punished. So does her family and anyone who dares to laugh. Fairy tales tend to have happy endings. The emperor is ashamed, everyone laughs, the spell is broken. In reality, the result is far-reaching self-censorship. Especially in high circles, for these are most closely watched which makes it particularly tricky to approach those people whose cooperation would be needed for a coup to succeed. A logical consequence of a personality cult is hereditary succession. After all, if a leader is all-knowing and infallible, then his sons must be special specimen too, right? Hafez al-Assad was succeeded by his son, and something similar was afoot in Iraq, until Operation Iraqi Freedom decided otherwise. Another reason for this is that close relatives were considered the best placed and most likely to keep the existing ties of mutual dependence in place. Another new prince would likely try to bring in his own people instead. Leaders would go to great lengths to keep the flow of rewards going. This can even explain Saddam's belligerence toward neighboring states. In the 70s, Iraq was one of the richer states in Asia. The rising oil income allowed him to have more clients and be more generous towards them than any of his predecessors. That alone might have sufficed to keep him in the saddle for a long time. Instead, he decided it would be a good idea to plunge his country into a long war with Iran. And wars are expensive. The oil-producing region around Basra lay close to the Iranian border and so the Iranians could easily paralyze it. Oil sources in the north were hard to access because of trouble with the Kurds. And as if that were not bad enough, 
Syria would refuse to allow export over its soil. After just a few years of war, the once impressive foreign currency reserves would dry up. And by the time hostilities ceased, Iraq was vastly indebted to countries like Saudi Arabia and, of course, Kuwait. Saddam had destabilized his own throne. How was he now supposed to sustain the ginormous client networks that kept him in power? He must have been desperate, so he asked his southern neighbors to consider the wartime loans as gifts for a good cause. But he could plead, complain and growl all that he wanted. They did nothing of the sort. Kuwait was not even prepared to cut oil quotas, so oil prices would remain low, which meant that Saddam had no way of replenishing his treasury anytime soon. At that point, he decided to invade Kuwait. Of course, a dictator who steals can't just admit he is stealing. That doesn't look good. There must always be a righteous reason given. And in this case, Kuwait was accused of stealing Iraq's oil. And it was declared that it had always been a renegade province of Iraq anyway, and that its independence had been the result of colonialist meddling. More on that later. Now, there was another reason why Iraq was so aggressive toward its neighbors. It had one of the world's biggest armies. And once you've invested so much in your armed forces, you're going to want to use them. Alas for Saddam, that was true of America too. The Gulf War would be an ideal opportunity to show what American forces could do, even to an army that was considered very formidable. So why had Saddam invested so much in weapons and soldiers? Well, one of the more self-evident lessons from Machiavelli's Mirror of Princes is that a strong army is vital life insurance. Dictators always need the military on their side. To keep it in check, they applied their divide and rule tactics. There were multiple branches in the army, in the police and the different security forces who all had a direct line to the autocrat. While they were not supposed to talk to one another, and they were keenly encouraged to keep an eye on each other too. But even then, it was inevitable that some of the officers would become major players themselves. They needed to be kept happy, and so a huge chunk of the state budget was set aside for the armed forces. This burden could not be removed without risking a coup. To convince the population that all these military expenses are actually necessary, you need enemies. Another thing that American politicians would have understood at the time. People who feel threatened tend to listen to politicians who vow to protect them. Of course, for someone posing as a strong man, victories are indispensable anyway. And finally, wars can act as lightning rods for discontent. They distract people, keep them from complaining about misrule, and those who do so anyway can easily be depicted as traitors. The favorite scapegoats would be the Jews. Anti-Semitism was never taboo in the Middle East like in the West, and the shenanigans of the State of Israel boosted the already existing hatred against the Jews further. There had been giant Jewish communities in Iraq since the days of Babylonian exile. In the late Ottoman period, Jews accounted for about 20% of the population of Baghdad. These were all effectively banished as a result of the enmity over Israel, which is where they often fled to, of course. But no country has been more consistent in its adversity toward the Jewish state than Syria. The endless tensions with its powerful neighbor gave Hafez al-Assad an excuse to keep his country in a state of emergency, prop up the army and intervene in Lebanon. It even brought him foreign sponsors who would rather use Syria as a proxy than fight Israel themselves. 
Iraq, for its part, shared no border with Israel, and so it had few interests there. But the Iraqi dictator realized that anti-Zionist rhetoric would go down well with his people. And other peoples too, by the way. During the Gulf War, he cunningly offered to retreat from Kuwait once Israel retreated from the West Bank in the hope of winning Arab sympathies. It worked with Yemen, as we discussed in the first series. By getting involved with the conflict between Jews and Palestinians, he followed Machiavelli's advice, which was that when parties quarrel, you should always pick sides. Even symbolic support would bring you allies, while no one will thank you for remaining neutral. Now, I very much doubt whether that is sound advice, to be honest, and this case illustrates why. Those who help do not always show gratitude. Iraq sent soldiers to help the Syrians fight Israel in 1973, but when they were defeated, this only led to mutual finger-pointing and lasting rancor between the two countries. And here's another problem with Machiavelli's advice. Support the losing side, and the winner will want to make you pay. In 1981, Israel would bomb an Iraqi nuclear reactor at Osirak. The intention, as stated, was to prevent Saddam from obtaining weapons of mass destruction. Sounds eerily similar to the faulty intelligence that would topple him two decades later. It even led up to it in a way, because Saddam then started hiding his development facilities better, which made it hard to tell what he was hiding. He should have steered clear of Israel and Iran and Kuwait. But although he didn't choose his battles wisely, he did know how to keep control of his own forces. One of the reasons why he feared the Iranian Islamic Revolution was that Khomeini appealed to the downtrodden, and especially to Shiites. Now, Iraq's own suppressed majority was Shiite, and not just that, they made up most of the rank and file. It is therefore striking that there were relatively few deserters during the war, some of those that would call for toppling Saddam referred to this to argue that if the Shiite majority would call the shots in Iraq, this would surely not give Iran more influence. But this was a grave misconception, it turned out. In reality, the Shiite soldiers had few options to collaborate with Iran or desert. For the same reason why soldiers in the First World War rarely rose up against their officers, the smallest whiff of disobedience, let alone treason, was punished by death. Not necessarily an easy death, and not necessarily just their own death. Mass executions of supposed traitors were broadcast on live television to hammer the message home. Spies were everywhere, that was well known, and all the officers were Sunnis. Meanwhile, what would later become the biggest Shiite party was founded in Iran, under the auspices of Tehran. And in the 90s, Iraqi Shiites rose up in great numbers anyway. So did the Kurds, as they had during the war with Iran. The difference was, I guess, that President Bush had then suggested the US would come to their aid if they turned on their tyrant. That would at least give an uprising a decent chance of success. If that is not the case, you can't reasonably expect people to risk everything. And it soon became clear why. Because to their shock, American help failed to materialize, and therefore Saddam was able to put down all these uprisings with relative ease. During the war, he kept his loyal Republican guards away from the meat grinder. He needed them to protect the regime against the Iraqi people if needed. And so they did. Needless to say, 
unlike the cannon father that was sent into the trenches. His trusted forces were well paid and cared for, and soon the Shiites would pay a terrible price. Hundreds of thousands were killed. Many insurrectionists sought shelter in the southern marshes as punishment, and so that they would no longer provide cover, Saddam had the swamps drained, literally. This created an ecological disaster as well as a humanitarian one. And then to think that some consider these wetlands the original Garden of Eden. Paradise lost indeed. Nowhere was Saddam's retaliation more terrible, however, than in Kurdistan. The Kurds had always had a tense relationship with the Iraqi state. They were often in open rebellion. In the 70s, the rebels were aided by the Shah of Iran. But when the latter stopped his support, many of them would flee abroad. Some Kurds were deported to other corners of Iraq and forbidden from returning on the pain of death, while Arabs were encouraged to move in the opposite direction. Of course, all this would sow the seeds of hatred between ethnic communities. Only recently this has been cited as an excuse for deporting Arabs out of Kirkuk again. But go down that path, and the spiral of hatred continues indefinitely, of course. Baghdad has accused the Kurds of taking advantage of the crisis with ISIL, and so too in the 80s, when the war with Iran was going badly. When Saddam's authority seemed to crumble, he felt forced to negotiate with the Kurds. But when the talks broke down, and the Kurdish leader Talabani called for secession, Saddam accused the Kurds of betraying their homeland in its hour of need. What followed is strongly reminiscent of Assad's response to the Arab Spring. In a campaign known as Al-Anfal, the spoils, most Kurdish towns were leveled. Whole areas were exterminated, women, children, even the animals. Poison gas was also used, and not a little. Survivors were deported to so-called victory towns, with wide roads that were easily accessible for tanks. After the Gulf War, there would be another uprising and more bloody repression. And while Shiite rebels often fled to the marshes or to Iran, Kurdish refugees would flock to the northern border, of course, to the alarm of Turkey. That was probably an important reason why the US prevented the Iraqi army from pursuing the refugees any further. Although there must have been humanitarian reasons too, no doubt. A no-flying zone was then imposed, with consent from the UN. Within their safe zone, however, the Kurds slowly dislodged their ties with Iraq. Loyalty to the new Kurdish homeland was propagated, the Arabic language was banned, and this for generations on end. They became an independent nation in all but name, raising hopes of Kurdish separatists in other countries, including Turkey. While the Syrian Kurds have only been able to carve out their own domain in the recent civil war, in Iraq they already got their Kurdish regional government in the early 90s. But like today, the Kurds did not dare to declare independence, all their neighbors would then turn against them, since all of them had Kurdish minorities with similar aspirations. The neighbors were unhappy enough about how things were. But they, there was a lot of sympathy for the Iraqi Kurds elsewhere, especially as they held free and fair elections in 1992, complete with international supervisors. This had never happened in Iraq. It was a very hopeful moment for the Kurds. Alas, their two biggest party blocs proved unable to cooperate. These were the PUK of Talabani and the KDP of ba the Barzanis. 
there was much that divided them. Their support bases were centered on other parts of Kurdistan, which had different economic interests. While the PUK leaned socialist, the KDP was more conservative in its ideology, not to say tribal even. But most importantly, their feuds were about power and control over the oil fields. By 1994, the Kurds found themselves enmeshed in a full-blown civil war, and this effectively ended their autonomy. For while the PUK courted Iranian help, its rival welcomed aid from Turkey, which eventually ended the conflict by creating a buffer between the two Kurdish domains. The PUK and the KDP both got to rule their own domains then, until the US brokered an agreement between them. And that happened, not coincidentally, right before the American invasion of Iraq, in which the Kurds would have to play a pivotal role. The KDP's alliance with Turkey was odd enough, but they made an even more awkward ally, Saddam Hussein, who had done his utmost to encourage discord within the Kurdish enclave. Because it was closed in by unfriendly neighbors, the Kurdish region effectively fell under the blockade against Saddam, and this meant that his regime could effectively decide to stop the flow of essential goods. To add to the food crisis, he induced smugglers to buy Kurdish grain above the market price. This not only made it clear that the Kurdish region couldn't function without Baghdad's consent, as intended, this also undermined the Kurds' faith in their own leaders and helped stoke unrest. Once that happened, he just had to wait until one of the parties requested his aid. So Saddam managed to turn the UN sanctions to his advantage, while they were specifically meant to remove him from power. As part of the embargo put in place in the 90s, fertilizer, pesticides and tractors no longer reached Iraq, so inevitably famine followed. The UN Security Council felt forced then to instate the Food for Oil program because of all the suffering that this caused, and well, perhaps also for other reasons. Iraq owed a lot of money to Russia and France, which were both permanent members of the Security Council. If Iraq couldn't sell its oil, how was it ever going to repay them? For further encouragement, Saddam assured them that once oil export would rebegin, French and Russian companies would be awarded major contracts. You can even play divide and rule with powers that were much stronger than you, apparently. Under the Food for Oil program, Iraq would be able to sell oil, but the revenue was not supposed to go to the regime, which would prove easy to circumvent. In theory, the money could only be used to buy food and medicine, but that too had perverse side effects. It proved impossible to get the necessities to the needy without the consent of the Iraqi state. And the regime often decided who would get access to it, including in the Kurdish region. So an, an arrangement that was meant to undermine Saddam and help his, his people became a tool that he could use to keep his people in check. Tribes or communities whose leaders refused to be his clients simply starved to death. State propaganda then simply blamed the result on those cruel sanctions and on the wicked Westerners that imposed them, of course, many of whom were also not insensitive to these images themselves. So many started to argue to lift the sanctions altogether. But all the while, Saddam and his cronies continued living in luxury, while their grip on the country would only grow stronger. Talk about turning a crisis into an opportunity. It would almost be brilliant if it weren't so diabolical. Considering all this brutality, you might think that these dictators didn't care if they were hated by their suppressed groups. 
but they understood the importance of not being seen as outsiders by the majority of their people. For instance, to raise his appeal among Shiites, Saddam pretended to descend from Ali. Likewise, Hafez al-Assad obtained a fatwa from Sunni experts, stating that Alevites like himself were indeed Muslims. Also, some people from the repressed groups were put in highly visible positions, although they held little actual power. Behind the scenes, the dictator's men pulled the strings, and these were almost always members of his own sect and tribe, and often his close kin. At the local level, too, the regimes found collaborators among repressed groups. They could employ both carrots and sticks for that. Someone could be convinced to buy a house that was confiscated from somebody else, making him complicit in the eyes of the dispossessed. But some had no choice in the matter. Refusal to cooperate could also put an entire family in jeopardy. Evermore, Saddam's favorite way of recruiting collaborators was through tribal chiefs. These regained much of the power that they had lost to the state in previous decades, acting like judges, for instance. Iraqis have always turned to sheikhs for justice whenever official tribunals were too slow or corrupt. Saddam also directed the flows of patronage through them. In some regions, like in the Kurdish ones, these handouts were often the only means of survival because the economy and the countryside had been so utterly destroyed. Almost like in ancient times, protection only came from tribes. So even city dwellers, who couldn't even remember that their family had ever belonged to a tribe, now felt forced to find one of their own. Just like many felt forced to become Ba'ath party members. Saddam was probably sincere when he praised tribal virtues, that was part of his self-image, but it also had the advantage of further weakening all national institutions. The Ba'ath party, the army, the bureaucracy, all these things were hollowed out and what remained were personal ties, ultimately, to Saddam himself. The implicit threat was that if the man at the top somehow died, the whole edifice would come crashing down. And this is precisely what happened after Iraqi freedom. The orderly transfer of power that the Americans had hoped for was therefore impossible, and from conversations between Saddam and his prison guards, it is clear that Saddam anticipated this. It was part of his precautions. It's as if he had put on a belt with explosives. Kill me and everything explodes. Machiavelli compared fortune to an unpredictable river that cannot be controlled in case of a flood. The only thing you could do then was build a dam in between floods. People know all about water control in the land between the two streams. But Machiavelli was of course speaking of another type of dam. To prevent a flood of popular anger, Assad and Saddam made sure that their enemies feared each other more than they hated their leader. America didn't support the Kurdish and Shiite insurrections after the Gulf War because they feared Iraq would fall apart after Saddam's departure. This would also cause a flood of refugees, which the neighbors didn't want. They also feared that if Iraq imploded, the Kurds might build an independent state on its ruins. Sunnis, Americans and others feared that Iran might fill the vacuum. Secular folk and minorities feared that Islamist radicals would take charge. And most of all, Iraqi Sunnis, Syrian Alevites and all imagined or real collaborators feared that if the suppressed majority ever emerged from under the dictator's booth, they would become the victims. 
More than anything else, it is this implicit threat that kept Saddam and the Assads in power for so long. The worst part about this is that these were not idle threats. All these fears have, up to a point, come true. Punishments were meted out, and not just against those who deserved it. In time, this led to yet another cycle of vengeance. In Iraq, the oppression of Sunnis enabled the rise of ISIL, which in turn led to the targeting of people associated with it, rightly or otherwise. In Syria, Sunnis have been driven out of their city homes, which were then given to Alevites. It's only a matter of time before this will lead to the next sequence of uh, revenge. So, I think it's time to answer the questions that we started the episode with. First, were Assad and Saddam ideal princes in the Machiavellian sense? Well, although they undeniably understood all the tricks in the book, they also made huge mistakes. In the 70s, both these countries were relatively safe and prosperous. And look at them now. If Saddam had not decided to attack Iran, his economy would not have suffered. There would, not have, there would have been no reason for the Gulf War, for sanctions, for WMDs, for the American invasion. None of it would have happened. And although they at least managed to stay in the saddle for long, this was by no means assured. Saddam's war with Iran could have been his undoing, for instance. When he seemed to be losing the war in the early 80s, Iraqi leaders offered peace to Iran without involving Saddam. Had Khomeini accepted, then the entire catastrophe would have been blamed on Saddam. Around the same time, the survival of the Assad regime also hung by a thread, as the president's brother staged a coup. Hafez was gravely ill at the time. Had he not found the strength to face down his brother in the streets, the regime might have imploded then and there. And of course, both men also made countless enemies with their cynical approach. Either of them could easily have fallen to an assassin's bullet. Saddam had to take extreme precautions to avoid this. All his food was tasted beforehand, he rarely slept in the same bed, and had an unknown number of lookalikes who took his place on public occasions. Would you want to live like that? And even with all these extreme precautions in place, there were multiple attempts on their lives, and it seemed near miraculous that they survived for so long. Because of this, they acquired an aura of invincibility, discouraging uprisings. Until the spell was broken, by overwhelming American firepower, or the sight of other Arab dictators being toppled during the Arab Spring. Then, all of a sudden, a lot of people dared to shout that the emperor had no clothes on. And now the other question. The Iraq War. Was it worth it? It's well known that terrible things have come out of it, and that the stated reasons were questionable at best, but I think today's episode has reminded us that leaving a despot in charge is also not without downsides or risks. Much of the misery that has followed their demise was a direct result of their deliberate actions. The sectarian and ethnic violence, for instance, was a reaction to their divide and rule. Violence has spilled over the borders, but it's not as if Saddam and Assad were ever stabilizing factors in the region themselves, nor did they want to be. Despite their differences and enmities, Saddam and the Assads organized their states in a very similar fashion, using similar strategies, and therefore I think it likely that Saddam, or his son and successor, would react to the Arab Spring more or less the same way as the Assads did. 
If that happened, there's a good chance that Iraq might now look like Syria today. Conversely, if Assad had fallen in the early stages of the war on terror, which was quite possible, maybe Syria would be a democracy now. Some have argued that in the case of Syria, the mistake was not to take decisive action early on, when there was still a moderate opposition to work with. But that might just as well have led to a third world war. We simply can't know. In a way, what if history is a waste of time, isn't it? But then again, how else could you ever judge whether something was a mistake or not? Now, as many of you know by now, I am sort of a pacifist. I was never in favor of the Iraq war. So you might think it funny then that I would be casting doubt on the net result just now that there is general consensus that it was a mistake. But I think that this episode has shown that there are very few unambiguous successes or failures in history. And so few clear lessons to be drawn. Something can look like a success in the short term, go horribly wrong in 10 years, and then perhaps end up mildly okay a century from now. As Su Enlai said in 1972, when he was asked whether the French Revolution had been a good thing, it's too early to tell. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, consider giving me a five-star rating on Spotify. That attracts more listeners and it boosts my enthusiasm for making another show. Enjoy the holidays and uh, talk to you soon. Bye.